Thank you for arriving safely on white shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise. White Shores is a podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. And I hope every episode, every interview informs, inspires and illuminates. Today's episode is a special one as it's an audio recording of an interview I did with one of 15 leading DreamWork specialists for the Shift Network. It was a real honor when Shift got in touch with me earlier this year to ask me to co-host their 2022 DreamWork Summit. I have uploaded a couple of the videos of these interviews to my seriously neglected YouTube channel if you want to watch them, but I wasn't able to upload all 15. So if you want to watch the video version of this interview coming up, do head over to the Shift Network and search for the DreamWorks Summit. There may well be a small fee to pay for watching their amazing summits, but one of the reasons I decided to collaborate with the Shift Network is that they offer a wealth of free resources for anyone who follows them. And I really hope you will take advantage of the transformative resources that they offer. So, now the scene is set. Allow the grey rain curtain of this world to roll back and all to turn to silver glass. Let's walk together, hand in hand, on the gentle, glistening sands of white shores to see what mystery lies beyond the material. It really is high time now to roll the tape. Welcome, everyone. It's just awesome that you are here. Now, in the words of Edgar Case, dreams are today's answers to tomorrow's questions. And our visionary guest today has mind-bending, daring theories on dreams, time travel, precognition, and the inner workings of the mind to share. Eric Wargo has a PhD in anthropology from Emory University, and works as a professional science writer and editor in Washington, D.C. He is the author of the acclaimed title, Time Loops, and in his spare time writes about consciousness, parapsychology at his popular blog, Nightshirt. Hello, Eric. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Teresa. Thank you for having me. Okay, I'm going to leap right in, a leap of faith here. Um, before we uh, find out a bit more about you for people who are new to you, you believe that future thoughts shape who you are now, if I'm correct in suggesting that, and that present thoughts can shape your past. You're very well known for your theory of time loops. For those new to this, would you mind just uh, giving us an introduction? Sure. Well, the the number one premise that I'm uh, working on, and this is, and I'm not the first to argue this, is that precognition uh, is a reality. Um, and there's a lot, there's abundant evidence for this. I mean, this is, unfortunately, this is not an idea that you're going to see expressed yet in mainstream psychology. Uh, but I think actually, it's only a matter of time, so to speak. Uh, uh, there's uh, abundant evidence has been gathered over the past century uh, uh, in the laboratory 
for instance, uh, showing the existence of the ability to to sometimes see things that are going to happen in your future. Uh, also, the ability to what I call pre-spawned to stimuli in your future. There's a big body of, of laboratory evidence uh, showing that participants in experiments um, can uh, get, get some kind of autonomic, unconscious uh, pre, uh, uh, indication of something coming down the pike. Uh, in in an experiment, for instance, uh, and participants in in experiments will be influenced by information they're going to receive in their future. Okay, that they haven't received yet. I mean, this is it's really mind blowing stuff. But you know, f- since the beginning of human history, people have have uh, talked about precognitive dreams, for instance, or w- what we now call precognitive dreams. That is to say. Uh, you know, having a dream that comes true the next day or comes true in a few days or, you know, later in your life. Um, and this is just basic. Every every single culture on earth just accepts this as reality. Ours is the only culture, uh, basically since the Enlightenment, that officially denies that. Uh, and yet, uh, surveys show that, you know, between a third and a half of people you know, consciously are aware of sometimes having had precognitive dreams. Um, uh, and I argue that, that this, it's more than just an occasional thing that this is, this is, I think, basic to what dreams are that, 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 that dreaming is a function of, of building. Well, we, even mainstream psychologists would agree that dreams are about building memories. Okay. They're forming memories. And that's what precognition is. It's, it's memory for our future. Our memory goes in both directions in time and, uh, and memories for our future are, are encoded and dramatized symbolically in our dreams. And it's a relatively simple process to just show this for yourself. I mean, you can demonstrate it to yourself relatively easily. And I guess we'll probably get into, into the techniques that you can use to do that. But um, it's a, it's a really mind blowing uh, reality, I think. Oh, absolutely. Um, And you've written an amazing book about that, actually. Um, Would would you mind just talking a bit about that book as well? And uh, we're going to unpick it as we go ahead, but I just want to flag up this book, which is amazing read. Thank you. Yeah. It's called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Uh, And I actually wrote it uh, my first book is on time is called time loops and sort of more generally on precognition and the implications of precognition uh, in a lot of realms. So I wasn't, I, I did have a chapter there on dreams and dreams crop up throughout the book, but I also talked a lot about creativity, how it plays out in, you know, writers lives and um, also a lot about the evidence for it. Um, but after I wrote the book, uh, you know, I was just bombarded by emails and people coming up to me, you know, after I would present on on time loops and they wanted to tell me their dreams and they wanted insight into their dreams. And I realized, uh, well, there's a that there was a big kind of need for a uh, a book solely on precognitive dreams and what I call precognitive dream work, which is approaching your dreams with the the assumption that that the dreams that you write down in the morning could well be precognitive of something that's going to happen in your future, and uh, and there are relatively easy ways to 
to find that out. And uh, and so I wrote a book, uh, which basically just you know distilled you know some of the argument in time loops down, made it a little more accessible. Uh, a lot of examples of my own precognitive dreams and other people's precognitive dreams who wrote to me. Um, and uh, but 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 really putting it in terms of principles that uh, that a, a dreamer can follow uh, to help interpret their dreams help detect precognition in their dreams uh, and kind of make that link between their dream life and their waking life later. Well, I mean, one of the, 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 probably the, the, the number one thing that people have to overcome is this assumption that we all, that we all have from our lifetime of living in our culture, that dreams, if they relate to anything at all, they relate to our past. Okay. Well, there's, you have to just overcome that assumption that, that a dream is somehow relating to your past. It's going to be full of symbols from your past. It's going to be full of, of, of motifs and elements and stuff drawn from your past life. But that's because that's, those are the materials that the dream, that your brain has to work with to, to represent or pre-present stuff coming down the pike from your future. So, so the, one of my arguments is that dreams sort of build these they, they assemble a scene, kind of a symbolic scene about a future thought or experience or learning experience or something, but they assemble it using the symbolic stuff drawn from your past. And so that's, it's very, you know, you can see why past dream researchers like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung, you know, thought that dreams were all about the past um, because they're full of past stuff, but the thoughts that dreams are sort of encoding uh, are, I believe, often, if not uh, always, uh, stuff that's actually in your future. Oh, it's, um, it's, forgive the pun, it's a bit of a dream speaking to you as well, because um, as you know, our connection is through Dr. Mossbridge, right. the neuroscientist mm-hmm. research presentiment. And when we were working on the premonition code together, which is about, you know, precognitive yeah. dreaming, Dr. Mossbridge would say, you've got to talk to Eric Wargo because that your idea of the long self over time was something that really, really inspired us. So, so thank you for that. So (laughs) it is actually amazing for me personally to, to get to speak to you. Thank you for your pioneering work there. But as you would expect for an interview, which jumbles time all over the place and throws out concepts of what is time, um, past, present, and future. I'm now going to do what I probably should have done at the beginning, but hey, we're timeless zone now of dreams. Please, could you tell listeners who are new to you about your background, why you decided to write about these really far out topics, let's face it, um, and just just your story, please. <laughs> yeah, well, it's um, it's kind of a convoluted story. I mean, most stories are convoluted. I um, I'm a science writer. I have a, a PhD in anthropology. Uh, I I went into science writing. I, I moved to Washington D.C. after I got my PhD, and and have been working in uh, various scientific institutes uh, and nonprofits um, since then, uh, mostly in psychology and neuroscience. Um, uh, that's my day job. Uh, but, uh, on the side I've, I've, well, for decades, I mean, since I was in college, I've had a real interest in dreams and, uh, and I was steeped in Freudian psychoanalysis and, you know, then Jungian and Lacanian psychoanalysis for many years. And so I've kept a detailed dream journal. Um, but I, I was not aware of 
precognition at all until I started reading the, the literature of parapsychology a little over a decade ago. And it actually, weirdly, it followed a, a, a slight UFO encounter <laughs> of all things. I had yeah, a, so nice Yes, I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I saw, you know, I, I, I had a UFO sighting and, and that really uh, got me reading about UFOs and ufology. And if you delve into that subject at all, you start to realize that, that it really dovetails in very interesting ways with psychic phenomena. And I had no, pro I, I was a, I was a materialist, full-on materialist, you know, scientifically educated. My parents were scientists and everything like that. I had no problem with UFOs. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing anti-sort of materialist about UFOs theoretically, except, uh, but the whole psychic stuff really bothered me. And I didn't, I couldn't assimilate that really into my worldview very easily. But the more I read uh, in, the, in the subject, I realized, wait, some very smart people uh, take this very seriously. And actually there's a lot of evidence and that it just gets swept under the, the rug by mainstream uh, scientists and psychologists, mostly psychologists. They really hate anything to do with psychic phenomena. And um, at the time, actually at the time I, I, when I was delving into this, I was actually the editorial director for one of the major psychological science uh, organizations. Um, and so I was kind of editing science, you know, psychology, psychology journals and, uh, and, uh, and it, it was around that time that, that a very famous, uh, paper came out, uh, called feeling the future. It was an article by a Cornell psychologist named Daryl Bem, very eminent Cornell psychologist who'd done a lot of pioneering work in personality and a lot of other fields. But he turned out in his um, later years, um, well, he's still he's still kicking, but he, he in, in his sort of uh, pre-retirement uh, years, he did this big series of, of experiments, very large experiments using Cornell undergraduates, as these studies typically do. But he did this series of experiments where he reversed the causal sequence in, uh, or the temporal sequence in some basic psychology kind of tasks like priming um, and other kinds of things uh, where he would reverse stimulus and response. So he would get a, a response from, from students and then have some sort of stimulus following the response. And he got statistically significant results showing that students pre-sponded to things in their future. I mean, it was mind blowing, but it passed peer review. I mean, it was, he was, you know, he was very careful in his methods, very careful in the statistics. And importantly, he made the experiments simple enough that other labs could easily replicate them. This is an important part of science. Anyway, he published this, this findings in a major journal uh, in uh, 2011, I think. And, uh, and it was a big, kind of splash uh he he loved this daryl bem loves publicity and negative publicity <laughs> he's he's totally happy to take on you know people who are trying to uh trash him um but wow i was it, it for me it was a real lesson in the uh, kind of bullying that that people who are 
making, you know, non-mainstream <laughs> arguments can can receive from uh, mainstream scientists. Uh, and uh, but anyway, his his results have replicated very well. A lot of independent teams have found these same kinds of of findings, uh, the kinds of things we talked about uh, earlier on. And and Julia Mossbridge has done a lot of the meta analyses, you know, of these 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 kinds of it's a kind of a subfield of precognition called presentiment that is feeling the future sort of in or responding to future events in some ways that go beyond our conscious awareness um so uh yeah so this was a big like wow that was eye-opening to read that at this point in my life when i was like starting to you know question some of the you know assumptions that i had i had had but but an added part of this is that um, I, I myself, because I'd had that long history of, of recording my dreams, interpreting my dreams, I'd also had precognitive experiences connected to my dreams that I had just, I had just ignored, you know, because they didn't fit, you know? And well, now I started taking them a little more seriously, like, wait, what's going on here? And, um, and Along about the same time, I started reading the literature on precognitive dreams. You know, there have been pioneers, a few real pioneers in, in the field of, of of what I call precognitive dream work, um, uh, including a uh, an uh, aeronautical engineer in the early years of the last century in England named J.W. Dunn, who uh, he he wrote a, a fascinating book called an experiment with time in which he looked at his own dreams and tried to understand them. He, he was, he brought up, he, he was an engineer and he brought this kind of really careful engineers mindset to sort of forensically, you know, picking apart what was going on with his, his dreams. And they, they weren't, you know, in the past, precognitive dreams have been linked to spirituality and spiritualism and things like that. But he, you know, he, he tried to be a bit more, you know, he tried to bring a scientific mindset to it. And uh, he, you know, he d discovered some important things, which uh, uh, are very important and that I've kind of tried to reiterate in my work. Um, number one being that we don't, that precognition is not a form of perception. Okay. It's not, you know, it, we, there's this term extrasensory perception that was coined in the 1930s. And that, and that, and that term has kind of uh, govern people's assumptions when studying this and and talking about it, but it's not a form of perception. It's a form of memory. It's a kind of cognition. I mean, literally, precognition is a kind of cognition, uh, and uh, and so it's not. It doesn't involve getting information from outside the head. It involves connecting to our own head in the future. You know, it's the head is connected to itself across time. And, uh, and that's, and, and that was a key discovery that he made um, uh, it, with his dreams. And that's, it, it holds true. I mean, the evidence all points to this being a form of memory uh, and precognitive dreams. Can, and now, you know, a century later after done, we now have a century's work uh, worth of, of literature on, on dreaming and sleep and how, you know, you know, what are dreams? How do they, how do they seem to function? Uh, and so when you sort of pull the kind of mainstream neuroscience views on dreaming and you bring it together with the, you know, this idea that, wait, you know, that there's, it's not just memory, it's memory for our future. Um, uh, you can really 
then create a very powerful, I think, theory of precognitive dreams, as well as a powerful method of precognitive dream work that goes beyond, I think, what Dunn was able to achieve. He was really an early uh, advocate of what, of what we now call citizen science. Okay. Cause his, his argument in his book was that, you know, you can do this yourself. You, you, you know, the way to prove this is for you to do it yourself. I mean, people need to, to, to gather the evidence for themselves uh, that, that this is happening in their own lives. It's, you know, it's not just me, you can do it too. And here's how. Um, and so his basic method was a two-step method, you know, write down all your dreams. I mean, that's something that if you're interested in dreams, lots of people do anyway, but the, the key thing is go back to your dream records after that night. And then the next couple nights, he advocated like the next few nights, you know, go back to every night, go back to your dream records from the previous two days. Okay. was his method. And just come, just see if there's any, you can find any linkages there between uh, your dreams and events that happened in those, in those couple of days. And, you're inevitably, eventually, you will detect some precognitive dreams. Now, what, where I go beyond that, okay, is that is in the understanding that dreams speak a symbolic language. Dunn was looking at very literal connections between dreams and events. And sometimes you'll find those. You'll Sometimes you'll find a, a dream that's just like, holy cow, you know, you live through this experience and oh my God, I dreamed this. And it's very obvious. But that's the minority of precognitive dreams. Most, most dreams relate symbolically or associatively, okay, to their to their referent. Okay. And this is, and this is something that comes out of both Freudian psychoanalysis. This is something that Freud was very right about. I mean, Freud was wrong about a lot of his, a few, a lot of his ideas, but his basic, you know, his basic theory of the unconscious is essentially correct. And neuroscientists realize that now, but uh, he was also correct that to that dreams speak in an associative language. Okay. They uh, relate associatively to events in waking life. And uh, so, so what I add to that two step method uh, of JW Dunn's, I add a second intermediate step. Okay. Which is when you write the dream down in the morning, just take a minute to free associate on it. And all that means, all that means is like, what's the first thing this reminds me of? What's the first thing this person in my dream reminds me of and what's the first thing this little detail reminds me of and and often it'll be you know something will immediately come to mind and it'll be random it'll be you know it it, it won't won't be logical it'll be very personal usually i mean you got dream journals should be kept private you know because it's like it'll it's very personal associations often embarrassing you know but but write those associations down along with a dream because more often than not, then when you go back to your dream records, it's those associations that link to the event that that uh, that happened in the meanwhile, uh, and so that'll like greatly amplify your you know your uh, your net, I guess, for catching precognitive dreams. Well, thank you for highlighting the, again the importance of a, a dream journal, and it always makes me think of Oscar Wilde saying he needed something sensational to read on the train, so he brought his diary. Well, we're going to take that one further. Not your diary, not the waking diary, the dreaming diary, because you do right. these parallel lives, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I too have kept a diary, and you can see how there's this 
part of you is that your higher self, your long self over your time yeah. that knows and is kind of commenting, brainstorming on your waking life. It is, as you say, it's not an under, uh, understatement to say mind-blowing. And I just wish yeah. more people would do it because then they would see why we're so excited. <laughs> I know. I mean, and this is the thing. I mean, just even leaving aside the mind-blowing precognitive stuff or the any kind of paranormal stuff i mean just dreams i mean i don't care what your approach to dream interpretation is i mean just freudian or jungian whatever you know just writing your dreams down and looking at them uh making that a part of your life is just so incredibly valuable and it's just it, it it's saddening to me that people have lost that uh that that it's so uncommon nowadays for people to pay attention to their dreams it's just that i know it's really it's tragic i think i mean the lockdown um you know because of covid did ignite an interest in dreams because we were more right i guess we were sleeping more more contemplative yeah. i i hope as we move out of the lockdown we don't lose that interest there was a reawakening of interest that people were suddenly waking up with vivid rich dreams and wanting to know the answers and i hope that 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 interest in dreams continues because you're absolutely right. It leads to a more fulfilling life. And it makes you think you're so interesting as well. <laughs> Is that all right. in me? Did I create that story? Wow. I'm amazing. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So go dreams. But um, uh, let's just, uh, uh, just some, some basics really for, for people listening. There's confusion, isn't there often between out of body experiences and dreams can you just unpick that and sleep paralysis and meditation right. all these things could you just sort of give us some you know basic advice there and some people are frightened of their dreams as well which really makes me sad yeah um and how to help there right well to your first question about like there's really a spectrum of dream-like phenomena that depending you know people are different people differ wi wildly about like some people don't aren't aware of their dream life at all like first of all we all dream we're all dreaming you know two to a half hours a night on average um uh actually we're probably dreaming the whole night but those vivid dreams that we think of as dreams are are happening during REM sleep and that's about two and a half hours if you're getting a good night's sleep um so we're all dreaming we have, you know, and no one really knows how many dreams we have during that time. And it's hard to sort of distinguish. They sometimes blur into each other. So it's like distinguishing what the dream, you know, is sometimes hard. Uh, but many more dreams than even the best dream recorder is only going to record a tiny fraction of the of the dreams that you're having in the, in the night. Um, but there's a whole, there's a spectrum really. On the way into sleep, and if you're a, a meditator or you, uh, or you, you know, you're really sort of, active dream worker you're going to be aware of this but most people aren't aware of it on the way into sleep you pass through a state that's called hypnagogia okay uh, and that's uh that's where you're kind of these kind of irrational dreamlike images uh often voices um uh intermix with your kind of your thoughts as you're drifting off okay and it produces really like strange stuff but most people aren't aware of it and it's kind of just a transitional phase and they forget about it but um artists throughout history and shamans have used have used hypnagogia you know and and been very aware of that intermediate 
phase between waking and sleep and, and, and developed techniques of even kind of staying in that state a little bit. Um, and, uh, and you can, you can do that. You can sort of learn to kind of work with, uh, hypnagogia and hypnagogic images are these, these are actually uh, for me more reliably precognitive than my night dreams. I mean, if, uh, if I write down the trouble, it's very challenging to arouse yourself at that moment when you're falling asleep, because it feels so good. You're about to fall asleep, <laughs> you know, but if you are, you know, a diligent, <laughs> dream worker and you know you really want to get those down you know you have to write them down right away or you're going to forget them um, otherwise you know you force yourself to wake up and write it down in a in a notebook uh you know if i write down you know three or four of those in a in an evening i can be guaranteed that at least one of them the next over the next two days will will match an experience or relate to an experience, a waking experience. There's so that it's very powerful, but, uh, and, and actually some arguably that, that hypnagogic kind of in between state, if you kind of learn to develop ways of inhabiting it, uh, and staying it sort of stabilizing it, um, uh, it's pretty similar to, if not identical with what people know as active imagination, the Jungian technique, um, where you're kind of uh, interacting with your unconscious um, and where, uh, you know, characters will speak to you and, and you have interactions with, with, with beings and characters. And that, you know, is very similar to, if not identical with uh, shamanic journeying. Okay. What, what shamans have always described and what people nowadays can learn to uh, can learn to do themselves. Um, and there are all kinds of techniques, you know, out there for inducing shamanic experiences. And some people are better at this than others. You know, some people are better at, at kind of inhabiting that kind of liminal, um, state than others, you know, but, but anyone can sort of be trained to do it a little bit. Arguably, this is what remote viewers very often are doing. Okay. They're, they're descending into a kind of relaxed state, uh, many of them, it, there's a lot of different techniques, but but many of them sort of describe sort of descending into a very relaxed meditative state where they're receptive to these spontaneous images that arise. Uh, and and that's, you know, a very, very fruit, psychically fruitful <laughs> state of being. Um, so that's kind of one part of this spectrum you talked, you asked about, but there's, there's, there are other dimensions to it. You mentioned sleep paralysis and out of body experiences. Um, uh, there's a lot of dispute about what out of body experiences are. They feel like you are out of your body, sort of the same way a lucid dream does. Um, so, the, you know, I'm, I question whether lucid dreams, out of body experiences are really any different. What, what distinguishes out of body experiences is that you are in a realistic environment and maybe can even perceive your body lying in bed or perceive, you know, very realistically your surroundings. Uh, and thus it feels like your consciousness has left your body and so on, maybe. But, but again, these states, whatever they are, are highly precognogenic is a term I sometimes use. I mean, write these things down when they happen because uh, uh, they, you know, some of my most sort of powerfully accurate, I guess, precognitive 
dream experiences have been in these, you know, out of body experience states, lucid dream states. Um, uh, there, there's, you know, there's something, you know, when, when our conscious ego kind of falls away or is, you know, suppressed because of dreaming or whatever, precognitive information floods in. And so this whole spectrum of kind of altered states of dreaming, I guess, uh, are you know, really fruitful for a precognitive dream worker. Thank you. And, and again, thank you for uh, reminding us to write them down <laughs> yeah. because that's proof. And you talk a lot in your books about uh, dreamers being citizen scientists. And that's mm-hmm. the first thing, because there's no point saying in hindsight, oh, I had a dream, yeah. unless you've got it written down with a right. time and date stamp proof. Exactly. That's what scientists need to push this this study forward. It's no yes. point the anecdotal is great, but we need the scientific proof. But right. to go to uh, precognitive dreams themselves, um, I, I have them sometimes, and they are amazing. Um, why are they all the images though so often distorted, and and why do they sometimes focus on trivia like? I'm going yeah. to meet someone wearing a pink dress, or and yeah. I do, and, and not more, yeah, you know, expansive, more because sometimes right. they, they focus on really trivial things yeah. that do ha- do play out in my future, and when yeah. they do, it's my again. I'm just like, oh, thank you, dreaming mind, you are amazing. Yeah. Why can't they give me something oh. bigger? <laughs> well, they can, they can sometimes. I mean, there's plenty of examples of 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 dreams that 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 point to a big event in your life. There's multiple answers to your question. First, you have to get into this mindset that precognitive dreams aren't some rarity. Okay. I think all I'm, you know, there's no way to prove this. All right. But I suggest, and I believe that all dreams contain precognitive material that in fact, throughout the night, uh, we are metabolizing our experience, our future experience. Okay. We're metabolizing it. We are creating new synaptic connections in our, in our brain, uh, related that, that, that encode these future experiences coming down the pike. Now, if we're, if we're doing that, and if we're only remembering, if we're encoding all of the kind of emotionally salient experiences in our waking life, but we're only remembering a tiny fraction of those dreams where we encode that stuff, then chances are that dream that we identified as relating to a later event is going to relate to something that's not like that earth shattering. It's going to be something trivial. You know, one of the examples in my book is of the sink backing up at work, you know, is a very brilliantly symbolic dream about the sink backing up at the office the next day. Okay. Well, that's not a huge, that's not a big deal in my day, but honestly, my life is boring. I mean, that's that was honestly probably the most exciting thing that happened in my day. It seems trivial, but 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 honestly, if we're if we're precognizing anything that's at all emotionally salient, you know, imagine your life is kind of a, a flat Kansasy landscape of dull, you know, going to the office and you know, nothing nothing much happening. You know, those little hills, those are the things you're dreaming about, and uh, so anything that makes any kind of at all emotional impact on us, you know, that's the stuff that we're precognizing. And the fact that we're only remembering a fraction of our precognitive dreams means chances are you're, you're going to notice those precognitive dreams about perplexingly mundane kind of experiences. They're not big stuff, but 
thankfully, most of our lives aren't full of big stuff. You know, I, I don't want a life full of big stuff. I don't want a life full of, you know, plane crashes and, you know, near misses on a battlefield or, you know, it, I don't want that kind of life. And, you know, so thankfully my dreams are full of those same mundane, you know, things. Um, but there's actually, there's another part of the answer though, too. The dream itself or that the event that, that you precognize, you know, running into a person in a pink dress or whatever, um, pay attention to what, to the larger, what was going on in your life in that window of time, like not just that encounter, say on the sidewalk with a person in that certain dress that you dreamed about, but like what had just happened in the past, in the previous hour, what is about to happen, what happened after that, right after that. Um, because uh, often people have mundane, these mundane dreams. I've noticed, I've noticed it again and again, and people reporting their dreams to me. And I've noticed it again in my own dream diary that they'll have these very mundane, these dreams about very, what seem like really mundane experiences, but then it'll turn out that actually there was something kind of significant that had just happened before, before that running into that person in the dress, or that may, may say in, and then in, in some cases, something significant happened right afterwards. Okay. So pay attention to that. I'll give you one example. Um, after I was speaking on time loops a few years ago, a guy came up to me uh, afterwards and told me this dream he'd had. And unfortunately, I didn't get his name, and I, you know, I, I don't, I, I would have liked to get more details on this. But um, he, you know, he told me that he'd had this uh, uh, this dream, and it was just like the most boring dream in the world. It was a dream about the inside of this diner. It was, it was very specific. You know, it was like the feel of this diner and all that. And it was just, it was just a, a dream about a diner and that's it. Okay. Well, like a couple of weeks later, he, um, he and some coworkers where they were in a, another city for a conference and the police evacuated the hotel that they were in because there had been a bomb scare. Okay. And the police was, were ushering everyone out of the building and they told them just get, get away, go, you know, get, get, get out of the neighborhood. Okay. They, and so everyone was instructed to sort of leave. So he and, and a couple of his friends sort of drove around for a while, trying to find a place to get something to eat, you know, because of, you know, they couldn't be at the hotel. And so they found this restaurant and, and parked and went in and boom, it was the diner that he had dreamed about. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Oh, it was a, it was a mundane dream about a mundane restaurant, but in fact, it was significant. He was, it was like actually a kind of a moment of relief after this stressful experience. Now he didn't, he wasn't aware at least of consciously having dreamed about the event of being evacuated from the hotel because of a bomb scare, but he wound up dreaming about this, uh, you know, this, this kind of moment of calm afterwards. You know, yeah. so so think about that larger context. It's not just the dream. It's like what happened just before the dream. What happened right after the dream? And that's that's that can help. That is fantastic because if you do meet an aspect of your dream when you're awake, you've dreamt it, and you get that deja vu. This is a sign to look deeper, look beneath the surface. There's more yeah. meaning here. It's a sign. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. For people listening, 
Have you got a tip or a couple of tips that you, you'd be able to share? I know your book is full of them for how to increase your chances of having a precognitive dream or recalling a dream that has precognitive elements. Is there no. any tip that you'd like to share? Well, the big ones are the ones that I I have mentioned. The 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 you know it's a three step process. Okay, it's write down all your dreams, and that means all of them. Not don't don't get lulled into this idea. Well, that was a boring, trivial dream, you know, or I only remembered a fragment of it. And so you just kind of forget it. Just write down whatever you can remember of your dreams, even if it's just a few images or just a single image or just a single feeling or, or, or whatever, every write down all your dreams and write down all the details because every noticed element in a dream is part of the dream kind of rebus. It's part of the, it's, 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 if you noticed it, if you noticed, you know, the, the weird texture of the coat that someone was wearing in a dream, if it stood out in the dream, for some reason, it's like, it's weird. It's irrational. It means something. It's a, it's part of the, 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 you know, if you imagine a dream as a sentence or a paragraph, you know, it's, it's, it's a word, you know, it's, it's, it's part of, of, of the, the overall signal there. And you need to get that. So write down all these, all those details. And honestly, one of the great side effects of really recording your dreams this way um, is it's great training as a writer, if you, you know, if you, if like, if like most people, you know, you're, you're like, you think you're a pretty bad writer and writing is a challenge for you. You know what? The best exercise is, is writing your dreams down and describing them, you know, as accurately as possible, because it's, it's, it's great, you know, training and because dreams are really irrational and weird and they don't make sense. Uh, but you need to write, write them as accurately as you dreamed them. It's all, it's never going to make sense. It's not going to be logical. You know, things shift, you know, the setting shifts or, you know, you, you're suddenly the, the person you're dreaming about versus the, you know, the, the witness or whatever, you know, things all, all shift around, but just get that accurately in writing. Um, because the more details you have, the more than, uh, you know, ways you can see, connections to later events and how how the dream was sort of symbolically shaping uh, that later experience. So, okay, that's long-winded step one. Step two, we talked about, which was free associating, you know, like what's, you know, what's the first thing this thing reminds, what's the first thing that texture of that coat reminds me of? What's the first thing that, you know, this person, this old college buddy in my dream, you know, what's the first thing they remind me of? They're named, you know, the names of people in dreams are often significant. Puns, puns are, are one of the, you know, dreams speak the language of pun. So, so you know, translating, often a, a connection will be revealed, you don't even have to free associate, just the connection will be revealed when you put it into words. So you see an image of, of something and you put it into words and it's the words that create the link to the, you know, later experience, because there's a pun going on that the double meanings of words uh, are, you know, that's the, this is Freud, something Freud discovered, and he was absolutely right. Dreams speak the language of pun. So, so that, that ver translating into verbal terms and then free associating, you know, just, just because, you, and, and I'll, I'll add to that free association business. You do the free, free association right away when you write the dream down and don't expect that you're going to get to the meaning of the dream. Because the point is if the, the precognitive meaning of the dream, the precognitive thing hasn't happened yet. So you're not going to know what this dream is about and don't. And honestly, some people claim that they can predict the future with their dreams. It's like, 
I, you know, that's never happened in my life. I could, you know, never once have I been right. If I've thought, oh, this is, this dream means that X is going to happen. It's like, no, it's never, it's never that way. And, and uh, often, you know, and I'll, I'll add something here. Um, you mentioned people being afraid of their dreams. And actually one of the, one of the sort of pitfalls of, of precognitive dream work is the moment you're, you're, as soon as you start being aware of this, you get really excited, but then you start getting terrified. You know, like I, I, I went through a phase where I was having, you know, I'd have a bit bad or have had a dream about something bad having my kids or, or, or something or dream about, you know, you know, looking in the mirror and, you know, seeing a tumor or something, you know, it's just like you get these, you know, these horrible hypochondriacal things or do, you know, like, oh my God, you know, you're, you know, you start to fear that, that your dreams are going to reveal some horrible thing that's going to happen. Um, you have to go, you have to work through that. <laughs> and I, and my book uh, explains, you know, why, why you're not more likely to have something bad happen to you because you, had a dream. Um, yes, people have premonitions. Sometimes premonitions are a very small minority of precognitive dreams. I mean, most of them are these dreams about like just, you know, mundane things happening in your day. And, you know, thankfully that's what our lives are full of, you know, um, uh, and premonitions never, almost never play out the way we dream them. Um, you know, so, so yeah, you, you people have, dreams about bad things happening, but realize that those dreams are about their thoughts. Okay. You're dreaming about thoughts you're going to have later. And for instance, um, one of the common, um, common types of dream to have are, are what people are often interpreted as warning dreams. Like you'll have a dream about, uh, about some calamity. And then in waking life, you'll actually be kind of alerted to this possible calamity and you'll avoid it. And people imagine that, well, they're dreaming about a possible future and they change their future and all that. Well, that's not the, really the way it works. You're, you're dreaming about thoughts that you had in the future. And actually, because of time loops, I don't know if we have time to talk about time loops, but uh, because causation is going both directions, you are your dream, you know, helped you guide you to safety, but it's not like there was another reality in which you, you didn't take that course of action and had a calamity. The point is when a, when a near miss happens in your life, whether it's a near miss auto accident or, you know, a, you know, something almost, you know, your, your, your child almost slipping and falling in a, in a pool or something like that. When near misses happen, our thoughts are full of calamities, right? I mean, we, we imagine what all these what ifs, okay? Well, we're dreaming about those what ifs, okay? And that's why often we dream about, you know, seemingly terrible outcomes um, that, you know, in fact, those are about our thoughts about terrible outcomes. And, you know, you know, 99% of the time, those outcomes don't, <laughs> don't happen. Uh, and they don't happen, or, you know, they don't happen the way that, we dreamed them, you know? And, uh, so yeah, people should not be afraid of their dreams. And another point I'll add to that is, is, uh, you know, it is, you know, people do sometimes, you know, people do sometimes have dreams about, about a loved one. And then they find out the next day that that loved one passed away or something like that. And then they'll blame themselves or they'll wonder, Oh my gosh, you know, should I have done something? Could I have done something? And that's no, you know, it's like the point is you'd not, you would not have found out about that, that 
bad outcome had it not happened. And you would thus, thus you wouldn't have had the dream. So, so there's like kind of a grandfather paradox that, that people need to be aware of that, that absolves, should absolve all dreamers of any guilt. Uh, if, you know, if you've had a premonition that, that, that did come true, uh, there's no way to go and undo that. Uh, that's, that's just one of the, you know, unfortunate tricks of fate, but, but, Precognitive dreaming doesn't make those things happen more than, you know, it no. doesn't make the bad things happen in your life. Uh, you know, it, arguably, and I'm sure you would agree with this, and I'm sure Julia would agree with this, is that, um, you know, the more intuitive you are, the more you are in touch with uh, these, you know, non-logical and non-rational and, you know, <laughs> unallowable forms of knowing and insight, the more we're in tune with that, the better our lives are, generally speaking. I mean, we, you know, intuitive people tend to avoid calamities and, and, and people who are um, just following their instinct tend to do better and tend to, to, uh, to have better outcomes. I think, I mean, again, that would be hard to prove, but I, I feel pretty strongly about that and I'm sure I'm sure you're agree <laughs> yeah I, thank you for reassuring us not to be frightened of dreams because as you say these are potential futures and we do still have free will that's the most powerful thing you know we always have free will but also I love you I'm moving closer and closer to your theory that all dreams have precognitive elements truly am because I spent a lot of my career dream decoding and looking at present but I love this idea of all dreams having that precognitive element I also loved what you just said about you know if you want to improve your writing you know to write down your dream and of course you're a science fiction writer made me think of Mary Shelley because (laughs) Frankenstein was a dream wasn't it so that's the first science fiction novel right wasn't it was a dream yeah yeah I'm actually I'm actually writing about this right now. It's funny that you you mentioned that my next book will be on precognition and creativity. And so I'm I'm looking at the role of precognition in in the lives and works of a lot of famous writers, Mary Shelley being one obvious example because her, you know, her story about how the premise of, of Frankenstein came to her uh in in what seems to have been a hypnagogic state uh lying in bed. Yeah. Um that's a perfect example. <laughs> Yeah, right. Right. I but mean, there's a million, million examples of this. Yeah. There's a, um, a running theme of in these uh, the interviews that's been talking about it being a creativity hack, that it yeah. can really boost your creativity in movies, in literature, in art, Salvador Dali, photographs sure. of a dream. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't wait to read that. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. And I'm, I'm going to close with another writer. I don't know whether she was a precognitive dreamer. I'm sure she was, but um I loved her quote, and it made me think of the books I've read of you. Um, The dream was always running ahead of me to catch up, to live for a moment in unison with it. That was the miracle, Aeneas Nin. Uh, I just thought, you know, (laughs) it made me think of you. And uh, just can you tell everybody listening who's eager to find out more, read your books, find out about you, connect to your universe. What's the best way to find out about you and your books and your research and writing? Sure. Well, I have a blog and uh, it's called The Nightshirt. It's all one word, The Nightshirt. Uh, it's an image from an old dream of mine. Um, and uh, that's, uh, I, I blog about this stuff. I, the asterisk by that is I have, I'm, I've been so busy lately that I have not added much to the blog, but that's, they can find all, my, all the links to all my interviews. I've got a lot of podcasts and web 
podcasts and stuff like that on there uh, and links to my books. Um, again, the books are Time Loops and Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. Um, and I'm on the only social media I do is Twitter, but I'm on Twitter uh, at the nightshirt is my handle. And I welcome people to uh, direct message me or whatever on Twitter. And that's how a lot of people get in touch with me. My email is in my most recent book, Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self. So people, you know, if they, once they read the book and, and, uh, and I, I love to hear people's experiences, um, uh, you know, having followed the instructions in the book or whatever. So, yeah. Oh, it's a brilliant read. And just can't thank you. Actually, I'm not going to thank you for your time. I thank all the other guests, but you know, time, you got, it's timeless. <laughs> thank <it>? the universe. <laughs> right. We've been here before and we'll return to it again. It's all a loop. Right. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you, you very it's... much, Eric. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you from my heart and soul for being here and walking beside me in spirit on white shores. Sensitive, kind, compassionate souls like you who see beyond the material are needed more than ever today to help this earth heal and evolve. If you have any questions, stories or insights to share, I absolutely love hearing from you and aim to reply to everyone in due course. My website is www.teresachung.com. My contact email is angeltalk710 at aol.com. And you can message me via my Instagram handle, the Teresa Chung, as well as my Facebook and Twitter author pages. Until we meet again on these white shores, keep being amazing spiritual you, sending my eternal love and gratitude. <laughs>